Our topic will be the dangers of covetousness. We're going to be looking at covetousness today. And I'm going to read from Exodus, our main text is from Hebrews. Exodus 20, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. And then Hebrews 13.5. <clears throat> Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such, thing as you such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. In this section of Hebrews, the author deals with practical, ethical exhortations and applications. Typical of Paul, I think this is written by Paul, but we don't know for sure. But even if it's not, this is a pattern in the New Testament. Doctrine, application. In verse 5, the behavior to be avoided is set side by side with the biblical remedy. And we see this in Paul's epistles commonly, especially the book of Ephesians. J. Adams calls it the put-off, put-on principle. This is what you have to avoid, the bad behavior. This is what you want to replace it with. We want to avoid covetousness, and we want to replace it with contentment. <clears throat> the sin of covetousness is condemned while contentment is praised. Consequently, as we study this topic, we will consider the duty required or what we must carefully avoid and then correspond, the corresponding positive replacement, Christian contentment. A number of commentators have pointed out that this epistle was written around the time there was a great persecution around AD 64 uh, where the homes of Christians were deliberately robbed and damaged by heathen idolaters. Uh, although possible, we must also keep in mind that in prosperous times, people are often very worldly and covetous as well. In fact, we have a whole theology in the United States, this uh, get-rich get scheme theology of uh, these so-called Christian preachers, Joel Olstein and all these people, where if you give unto God and plant your seeds, and uh, God's going to reward you by making you rich and so forth. This teaching is the author of Hebrews' explanation of the Tenth Commandment. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, wife, male or female servant, nor anything that is your neighbor's. We find that Deuteronomy, uh, of course, 2017, uh, excuse me, Deuteronomy 521, Exodus 2017. <clears throat> the Greek word used for covetousness in Hebrews, aphelars guros, means literally lover of silver. It's a narrower than the common word for covetousness, pleon nectes, which is covetous, or play on nexia, covetousness, and refers specifically to an unlawful love of money or worldly wealth. Somebody who's obsessed with riches, somebody who's obsessed with worldly things. The common Greek word <clears throat> refers to a, to a desire to have more in a bad sense. <clears throat> in a bad sense. Thus it is connected to greed and unlawful lusts that lead to an unlawful activities. Theft, adultery, fornication, fraud, <coughs> deception, avarice, and so on. Although the narrower term focuses on money, we will still consider the broader sense in that an unlawful lusting after money is obviously connected to an unlawful desire to possess the things connected to riches. <clears throat> you can't really do much with silver and gold. It's pretty to look at. You can make jewelry out of it. But people want to be rich and they want money uh, for the things they can buy with it. As Paul notes in 1 Timothy 6.10, <clears throat> for the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. The Hebrew word for covet in Exodus and Deuteronomy, chamad, or mod, <clears throat> used in Exodus and Deuteronomy, indicates a delight, lust, or coveting after something where one's desires are focused and fixated on something whether lawful, okay, you can 
It's okay to covet your wife. Or unlawful. <clears throat> your neighbor's wife. Or your neighbor's lawnmower. Your neighbor's car. So covetous can be used in both a positive sense. For example, First uh, Corinthians 12.31 but earnestly desire, the same word, desire the best gifts. And he's talking about the spiritual gifts. You want to covet <clears throat> or desire spiritual gifts. <clears throat> and of course, a negative manner. The inner desire is to be regarded as lawful or unlawful according to the object on which the desire is fixed. For this reason, the Tenth Commandment is very detailed in its prohibited items. Your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's male or female servant, your neighbor's ox or donkey. And then to make sure it covers everything, anything that is your neighbor's, you're not allowed to covet. The Bible makes a distinction between lawful desire leading to honest gain and prosperity and evil covetousness leading to fraud, theft, and dishonest gain. <clears throat> For example, see Habakkuk 2.9. You know, you know you need a car. you got to get to work. You have a long drive. Gas is expensive. So you say, you say to yourself, well, you know, I'd really like to have one of those uh, Toyota Priuses. It's a nice car. Gets good mileage. And you decide, <clears throat> I desire that car. And then you save up and you buy yourself a Toyota Prius. Nothing unlawful about that at all. But if you desire neighbor's Prius and you steal it, <laughs> That's unlawful. <clears throat> so the word covet, hamad, when used of sinful behavior, <coughs> refers to an inordinate desire or a desire for something unlawful that is so strong one plans on obtaining it or one is actually moved to attain it through theft, fraud, coercion, or deception. Here's some examples. Aiken presents an excellent example of sinful covetousness. Notice confession in Joshua 7.21. Okay, this is they had to take the city. Did God knock the walls down? They go in, they conquer the city. Here's what Aiken says. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, that's a lot of silver, a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, that's several, you know, that's like $50,000. I coveted them and took them. Now, the city of Jericho had been placed under the ban, the Cherim principle, the special curse of total destruction by God, and God explicitly told the people, you're not allowed to take any spoils. No spoils. Everything is to be killed and destroyed. Any precious metals, silver, gold, copper, lead, I mean, or iron, uh, found were to be turned over to the priests for the treasury of the Lord. Joshua 6, 17 to 19 and 24. Now, if Achan had come across these spoils and he admired them, wow, that's a beautiful garment. Uh, boy, that's some really beautiful gold coins. That, uh, that's a nice chunk of gold there. Oh, look at those beautiful silver coins. If he admired them and really liked them, but he said to himself, God has forbidden me from taking these. These I have to turn these over to the priest for the temple, the future temple or the tabernacle in this case. <clears throat> that would not have been a sin. You could admire your neighbor's Ferrari. Say, oh, that's a beautiful red Ferrari. I like that car. I wouldn't mind having one. No, I can't afford it. I'll never get one, but that's a nice car. You can look at it and admire it as long as you don't covet it. In Judah during the 8th century BC, the rich and powerful Jews would covet their neighbors, and this is directly out of Micah 2.2, quote, fields and take them by violence, also houses and seize them. So they oppress a man and his house, a man and his inheritance. And God is emphasizing how wicked it is because they're not just robbing from the next door neighbors, they're robbing from their children, their inheritance. <clears throat> the oppressors had laid in bed this is uh, the context, Micah uh, 2.1. And lusted after their neighbor's property and thus planned how they would steal it. 
They laid in bed at night. They planned evil in their hearts. I want this. How am I going to get it? Hearts full of envy, greed, and sinful desires lead to the devising of iniquity and then the practice of wickedness. More examples. In 1 Kings 21, we read about how wicked Ahab coveted Naboth's vineyard. Naboth's land, was, we're told in the text, is right next door to Ahab's property. Ahab could look out his window and look at Ab <laughs> Naboth's property. He could see the vineyard. He wanted it. Now, Naboth could not sell the land to Ahab because of Israel's inheritance laws. 1 Kings 21, 3 and 6. <clears throat> in Israel, your family's given property and that property stays in the family. You're not allowed to sell it. And so he said, Naboth's a righteous man. He says, I'm not selling this. This belongs to my children when I die. This covenant led to evil plans and wicked acts. False witness. And of course, this was all, Jezebel sees him all upset. He's all super upset because he can't get this land he wants really bad. He's lusting after it. And he tells Jezebel, his wife, and she says, look, man, you're the king. You got the power. We'll get the land for you. So there was false witness, gross slander, false civil charges, judicial murder, and then royal confiscation, which is simply theft. False charges were brought against him, and he was put to death, and the land was seized. And then we know that the end of that story, God, because of that, God condemned both Ahab and Jezebel to death, and uh, Jezebel was eaten by dogs. King David went on his roof. <clears throat> He's up there. The army's out at battle, but he's at home. He's up on his palace, and he's looking down at the neighbor's beautiful wife taking a bath, Bathsheba. Should have walked away. But he lusted after her, and then he seduced her, another man's wife, and then he ended up committing murder to cover up a scandalous sin, which was also, of course, a crime. Adultery. He could have been put to death for that but he committed murder. 2 Samuel, and that's uh, 2 Samuel 11 and 12. So the 10th commandment covers all prohibited inner desires and attitudes because sin begins in the heart and the mind. If the heart is placed under the full control of the moral law, then the tongue and the hand will follow. Oh, what a beautiful woman. She's amazing. And she, she's flirting with me. She likes me. And then your mind has to say, but that's not my wife. So you walk away. Jesus, internalization of the moral law and the Sermon on the Mount, in opposite to the Pharisees and scribes, Matthew 5 through 7, is simply an application of the 10th commandment to the whole moral law. That's all it is. And it shows that the Pharisees had perverted the law and had neglected the meaning of covetousness, which internalizes the law. Now, it's important to note the distinction between lawful and unlawful desires for Roman Catholic theologians and even recent popes, I remember this. This was a statement that came out, I don't know, about 20 years ago. I remember when the statement came out, I was where the pope says it's wrong to lust after your wife. So I guess you're supposed to turn the lights off and, you know, think about uh, surfing or something. But you're not even allowed to lust after your own wife, according to the pope. <clears throat> they have spoken about sinful sexual lust for one's own wife. Such thinking, of course, is Neoplatonic and has nothing to do with scripture. How do I know that? Well, here's Proverbs 5, 18 to 19. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice with the wife of your youth. As a loving deer and a graceful doe, let her breast satisfy you at all times and be enraptured. And the, Greek, uh, the Hebrew literally means intoxicated with her love. <clears throat> and also the Song of Solomon. The Song of Solomon is not simply uh, typology about Christ and the church. It's talking about real marital love. 
And for the Apostle Paul, the biblical answer to sinful sexual lusts and temptations toward fornication is Christian heterosexual marriage, not asceticism. Young people, they, they're lusting. What does he tell them to do? Get married. 1 Corinthians 7, 9, if they, and he's talking about the unmarried and widowed Christians, if they cannot exercise self-control, let them marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. And also read 7, 2 to 5, where he talks about one of the reasons of marriage is to take care of these issues so you don't have unlawful lusts. That's one of the purposes of marriage. It's not simply to bear children. The key to avoiding covetousness is contentment. For one is content and happy, one who is content and happy will not contemplate any unlawful plans or means, dishonesty, fraud, deceit, theft, coercion, to obtain what properly belongs to another. The tenth commandment, therefore, not only sums up commandments six through nine, but also, as I've noted, internalizes them. You're not to steal, but you're not to plan on stealing in your heart and covet. You're not to fornicate or commit adultery. And you're not to do it in your mind either. How am I going to get my neighbor's wife? You don't plan on it. You don't covet it. It's forbidden. It condemns the beginnings of iniquity in the heart and teaches us to view our thoughts with a biblical perspective. It should not be viewed as a mere appendage to the commandments, but as crucial in learning to nip sin in the bud before it breaks forth into words or actions that harm our neighbor and society. We just had a case down in uh, Austin. <clears throat> there was a very pretty girl who was a, a professional bike rider. She was a racer. And she was highly competitive. She, she was a winner. And she had a boyfriend, apparently, who was also a champion bike rider. And people get paid for this. It's a sport. Well, he had been dating another girl. Before her, the other girl wanted him back. She lusted after him, and what did she do? She murdered her competition. Went over to her house and shot him. Now, she just was convicted about a week ago, and she's been sentenced to 90 years in prison. I think she should have got the death penalty. But 90 years, she'll never get out. <clears throat> Covetousness led to lust and murder. Well, covetous is lust, but it led to murder. Now, in the economic and scientific sphere, lawful desires are good and necessary, for they stimulate men to invention, discovery, hard work, competition in the good and friendly sense, and ambitions that help others. Okay, this idea that competition is bad, and, and uh, it all you know, basically comes from Marxism. We don't want to give people grades in school. It's just going to be a pass or fail, and we don't want to... We don't want to uh, give, give out medals for people who do good in sports and all this kind of nonsense. Competition is good. Musical competition produces better music. When John Lennon and Paul McCartney were together, they wrote their best stuff. They were competing with each other. When Jimi Hendrix went to England, Eric Clapton and Jeff Beck and everybody else lifted up their game. Nothing wrong with that. That's healthy competition. And in the scientific sphere, that's very good and healthy. It's, it's used for dominion. All these things are helpful and needed for the cultural mandate. Forms of pietism that have their roots in Neoplatonism, Stoicism, asceticism, and of course communism, the so-called equity, undercut the true meaning of the Tenth Commandment and do far more harm than good. They not only hinder godly dominion and social societal progress over time, but also end up stimulating covetousness because they pervert the meaning of God's law. Now, competition can result in coveting in a bad sense. We think of um, Thomas Edison invented the telephone, but he also was involved in electricity. And there was this other guy involved in electricity who was actually smarter than him and better in this area, a guy named Tesla. 
And Tesla invented the alternating current, which made it much safer and better to transfer electricity over lines in a farther way. And uh, Thomas Edison used coercion and political coercion and so forth to try to s suppress Tesla. That's unlawful. But competition is good. Christians must understand the distinction between free market capitalism regulated by biblical law, remember that, regulated by biblical law, and unfettered antinomian capitalism, where greed, unholy lusts, fraud, deception, and coercion are used to get an advantage over the competition and bilk the customer. Now, I used to be a really good salesman back in the day. I've sold cars, I've sold insulation, I've sold windows. It's very tempting to lie. It's very tempting to lie about your competition. It's very tempting to lie about the product and exaggerate and all these things. And that's simply unbiblical. So when we talk about the, the benefits of capitalism or the free market economics, we're talking about free market economics regulated by God's law, which means you don't lie to customers and you don't manipulate people and shaft them. <clears throat> Ironically, the civil government's intervention in free market capitalism in the name of compassion and fairness, which they claim, has actually corrupted the process both economically and politically. You get the government coming in and helping this company and hurting that company. And we see that right now, of course, Biden and the Democrats are very anti-Elon Musk and Tesla uh, because he's not parroting the economic propaganda. Now, to be without any desire, even lawful desires, is a Stoic Buddhist concept that cripples social progress. Okay, the goal of Buddhism is to eliminate all desires. And the purpose of eliminating all desires is if you have no desires, you can never get upset about anything. To renounce sinful desires and to refuse to entertain them or cooperate with them is crucial to Christian holiness. But that's very different than Neoplatonism and Buddhism. Humanistic pietism is pagan in origin and leads, to society, leads society to reject Christian progress and embrace socialism and state theft. Okay, we're going to try to level everything so everything's you know, so-called equity. God's command not to covet is crucial for it internalizes, internalizes the law and tells us plainly that it is sinful to crave strongly desire or yearn after persons or things that belong to someone else. It is not simply wanting to possess something that we do not have, such as a new lawnmower or a car, but it is desiring to possess something that, men, that we are not allowed to have because it already belongs to our neighbor. Like I said, if you, you know, we all, you know, we need cars to get around. And uh, you say, well, you know, I really need a car. I'm going to save up and buy a car. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you carjack somebody and steal their car, then that's unlawful. One can want a sports car and decide to save up money over time to purchase such a car. Such a procedure is perfectly lawful if spiritual duties are not neglected to gain the, uh, to gain the wealth needed quickly. But if one has a sinful desire to get a neighbor's car through theft or fraud or coercion, then that consuming desire is sinful. And I've seen, you know, I've watched these crime shows, and I saw a show where the guy really wanted this truck. This guy had an old classic Chevrolet truck that was cherried out. He wanted it really bad. So he pretended to, that he was going to buy it. He was a guy who just got out of prison. He pretended that he was going to buy it. He, took, he went out for a test ride with the man and his wife, and he shot them both and killed them and took the truck. He took the papers, and he forged their names and made it look like he bought the truck from them. <laughs> and, of course, he was caught, and he got the death penalty, fortunately. The Bible unequivocally condemns an unbiblical, uncontrolled, inordinate, greedy, selfish desire for people, money, positions, or things. 
a young Christian man may desire a pretty Christian woman to get married so he can have a family and take care of his needs. Such a desire is not unlawful and is even necessary to fulfill the dominion mandate. But if his desires go beyond biblical parameters and he wants a woman he wants a woman or many women for unlawful relations, he is guilty of sinful lust or covetousness. Okay, Christians, real Christians, the only reason they're meeting people is to seek to get married. If they're not ready for marriage, they have no business trying to meet the opposite sex at all. They have no business. There's only one reason for the opposite sex. Find a godly mate and get married. That's it. Eve sinned in her lust, her lusting after forbidden fruit because she knew it was not lawful for her to eat it. Simply because God said so. Satan stimulated her unlawful desires with deception and an appeal to envy. Eve, if you eat this, you're going to be like God. You're going to be able to determine for yourself good and evil. God's trying to hold you back. He's keeping something good from you. He did that to get her unlawful desires to become a sinful act, and that's from Genesis 3.5. Now let's read the Westminster Larger Catechism on the Tenth Commandment, which I think is very helpful. Question 148. What are the sins forbidden in the Tenth Commandment? Answer. The sins forbidden in the Tenth Commandment are discontentment with our estate, envying and grieving at the good of our neighbor, together with an inordinate motions and affections to anything that is his. End of quote. And here's Tom and Thomas Watson's comment, which is excellent. Quote, It is lawful to use the world, Yea, to desire so much of it as may keep us from temptation of poverty. Proverbs 38 and 9. Give me not poverty lest I steal, and take the name of the Lord God in vain. And as may enable us to honor God in works of mercy. Honor the Lord with thy substance. Proverbs 3, 9. But all the danger is when the world gets into the heart. Water is useful for the sailing of the ship. All the danger is when the water gets into the ship. So the fear is when the world gets into the heart. I was in seminary and I had a friend. I was going to 10th Presbyterian Church. That's where I met my wife. Didn't really care for Boyce's preaching. Didn't really care for that. I don't like big giant churches, but it was a great place to meet beautiful young Christian ladies. And that's where I met my wife. And as soon as we got engaged, we went to a small church. But... I had a friend there who was going to Westminster. I went to Reformed Episcopal. And um, what does he do? He drops out of seminary. He buys a red Corvette and he starts chasing skirts. There's nothing wrong with buying a red Corvette. But the worldliness got into him. Remember what Paul says about Demas. Demas has left me, having loved the present world this inordinate affection for the world and things of the world to the neglect of spiritual matters is very deadly. Now the command not to covet is crucial to understanding the whole moral law because it internalizes the law's prohibition and teaches us that we are responsible to control our minds and our thinking. We have to learn to think biblically all the time about everything. <clears throat> the moral law not only regulates our outward actions and words, but also our inward thoughts, desires, and motives. The river is to be submitted to God as well as the spring. If the source of sin is controlled or subjected to God's revealed will, then the outward rebellion will not occur. And James is great on this, James 1.15. Each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when unlawful desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. So what happens is there's an unlawful desire in the mind. And instead of the person saying, this is unlawful, I'm going to get rid of this, he toys with it and he plays with it and he 
allows it, it to become active temptation. And he enters into temptation, and he commits sin. The mind of man contains many desires. Because of original sin or inner or innate depravity, many of those desires are contrary to the law of God. That's just sad but true. We're, we're fallen creatures. Paul speaks about these as the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling, that is, obeying the desires of the flesh and of the mind, Ephesians 2.3. The apostle, when speaking of the source of sinful desires, refers to them, and this is Romans 7.23, the law of sin which is in my members. We have a law of sin in us that we have to deal with due to the fall. These sinful desires which flow from our inner corruption make one, and this is Paul again, carnally minded, Romans 8.6. <clears throat> carnally minded. They dominate the old man, Romans 6, 6, Ephesians 4, 22, and Colossians 3, 9. The fleshly, unregenerate soul that lives for self and sin, not God, Romans 8, 7 to 8. It is unlawful desires that convince the mind to commit unlawful acts. The brilliance of the Tenth Commandment is that it teaches us to wage warfare against sinful desires so that there is no inner consent to sin and therefore no, no sinful act which follows. Paul described this inner fight in the Christian mind when our spirit-enlightened knowledge of God's revealed will or moral standard comes in contact with sinful desires. And he says this, Galatians 5.17, the flesh lusts against the spirit, and the spirit against the flesh. There's a war going on in every single Christian between the old man and the new man. These unlawful lusts are the governing principle of the unconverted evil world system. As John says, 1 John 2.16, For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. For Paul, it was the command not to covet that really showed him his sin and guilt. Just remember, the Pharisaical system is very uh, outward. They ignore the internal aspect of the law. Here's what Paul says, Romans 7, 7 to 8. I would not have known sin except for the, through the law. For I would have not known covetousness unless the law said, you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. So Paul was considered a good Pharisee. He's not out shacking up, getting drunk and stealing and robbing and doing all these terrible things. But he admitted that in his mind he was doing all sorts of evil things every day. <laughs> he admitted it. And it showed him, I need Christ. I can't earn salvation. The Tenth Commandment is especially well suited to show us our sinfulness because it explicitly goes beyond the outward act to the inner root of the act. Covetousness is linked to idolatry in Colossians 3.5 because it ex exalts sinful autonomy or evil desire to the supreme place of human philosophy and decision-making. I believe that's also Ephesians 5.5 as well. <clears throat> it's the essence of humanism, secular humanism. I'm going to do what I want to do. In the evolutionary mindset, the macroevolutionary mindset of secular humanism, covetousness would be a good thing because it's survival of the fittest. And covetousness is just man devising a way to get, get one up on his neighbor. But of course, secular humanists borrow heavily, actually they steal heavily from the Christian world and life view. Love towards God and Jesus Christ fulfills the law and submits our desires to God's will, whether our sinful lusts like it or not. And Jay Adams, you know, if you haven't read Jay Adams, he's excellent on this stuff. What if my heart's not in it? What if my I'm lusting and my heart's not into the right thing? Maybe I, I'm not all turned on by my wife right now and I'm having trouble with lust. Jay Adams says, it doesn't matter. You follow the scriptures. You obey scripture. No matter how you feel, you're 
mind will get in line with the law. Obey the word of God. But a heart that gives in to covetousness and envy places the sinful autonomous ego on the throne. As a dedicated Pharisee, Paul was living in self-righteousness. He was complacent. He had an unperturbed life as a legalist. Because it's not all that hard to not actually go out and kill somebody or to not steal something or to not actually go out and pick up a woman in a bar and commit adultery. But try to control your mind for one day. Try to control your mind. But when the Holy Spirit applied the 10th commandment to his heart, he was made aware of his inherent uh, uh, depravity and guilt before God. His high opinion of himself was left in the dust and he knew that he needed Christ. Thus we see the great importance of the Ten Commandment in that number one, it internalizes all the previous commands and tells us to purify and submit the heart or our thinking to Scripture. <coughs> two, it reveals to us the absolute necessity of the gospel of Jesus Christ and the need for an inner renewal of the heart and regeneration. Now, we're not sinless. We still sin every day. We have to confess our sins every day. Sad to say. But it shows us our sin, and we confess our sins. Here's what Calvin says. It's wonderful. Since it is the will of God that our whole souls should be under the influence of love, and of course we're talking about love biblically defined, every desire inconsistent with charity ought to be expelled from our minds. And he means inconsistent with love to God and our fellow human being ought to be expelled from our minds. You know, these people like the, the, the famous singer, she was supposed to be a Christian, Amy Grant. And uh, she, she left her husband and committed adultery. She divorced her husband and married the guy she was committing adultery with. And her, her excuse was, well, I had to follow my love. I had to follow my heart. I had to do what love says to do. Well, that's not love. Sin is not love. Paul's very clear about that in 1 Corinthians 13. Love doesn't do any evil to a neighbor. That's not love. Love is obeying the commandments of God. The commandment you shall not covet applies the whole law of God to our minds. Our emotions, motives, assumptions, and reasonings are all to be subjected to the moral law. Here's some passages. 1 Samuel 16, uh, 7. The Lord does not see as man does, for man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Proverbs 12.5 The thoughts of the righteous are right. Proverbs 15.26 The thoughts of the wicked are an abomination to the Lord. Isaiah 55.7 Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Isaiah 59.7 Their thoughts are thoughts of iniquity, wasting and destruction are in their paths. Isaiah 65, 2. A rebellious people walk in a way that is not good according to their thoughts. Proverbs 4, 23. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it spring the issues of life. Proverbs 6, 14. Perversity is in his heart. He devises evil continually. And then, of course, our Lord's words in Matthew 15, 19. Out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. For all these reasons, Jesus told us, and this is Matthew 26, 41, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Why? Why do we need to watch and pray? Well, he says the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Guard yourself against temptation, or more accurately, entering into temptation. This command to conduct our lives without covetousness is universally needed in our day in every class of society. The poor and minorities are taught by the Democrats and socialists among us that envy, resentment, and covetousness is a right and a duty. 
That's how they run for office. It's all based on covetousness. It's all based on a desire to get someone to steal on their behalf, to build up resentment. White privilege. Those dang whites. Hate them. You should hate whites and vote for me. Those rich people, those corporations, they're not paying their fair share. You need to hate them, resent them, and vote for me. All steal from them on your behalf. The message is, you have been exploited and ripped off. Vote for me and I will confiscate the wealthy's money on your behalf. I will make the rich pay their fair share. Now, there are a bunch of liars, and it's all propaganda, as you know, in that the wealthy in this country pay by far the vast majority of taxes. And people who are middle class and lower middle class don't pay any taxes at all, other than property tax and things like that. They don't pay taxes. You have to make over a certain amount to pay taxes. The wealthy pay for virtually everything, which is unjust. The wealthy should pay the same percentage as the poor. The idea of the wealthy paying more is based on the Communist Manifesto. That's where it first was propagated. And we've all accepted it. If you're more successful and you make more money because you work harder or you're smarter or you're more ingenious, you shouldn't have to pay any more taxes than somebody who's an idiot or somebody who's lazy. Covetousness is not used to help the poor or society, but rather to exploit poor people and minorities for political power. That's why they really don't want to get people out of poverty. They don't want to teach people what they need to, they don't want to teach them biblical responsibility and the necessity of hard work to get out of poverty, because if they do, they'll lose voters. They want people to be permanently poor and permanently in poverty so they can have permanent votes. They want a permanent, why are they inviting everybody in from Mexico and Central America and South America, from all over the world, poor people from all over the world, because they think they're going to get votes that way, because they give people benefits. The great sin in society, according to Democrats, Marxists, and Socialists, is contentment and personal responsibility. When economic and social progress is divorced from biblical ethics, the result is social decay, the disintegration of the nuclear family, and more crime. And they're even told this great, um, you know, like if you go to prisons, prisons are, I forget, 85% black, even though they're like, what, 15%, 10%, 13% of the population. They commit way more crimes because fathers are not in the home and they're generally immoral and the black church is apostate and wicked. The black church is racist to the core and democratic to the core. <clears throat> but they're taught it's whitey's fault. It's white privilege's fault. Don't be responsible. Don't take responsibility. Covetous envy and class or, race, uh, class or race hatred is justified in our day by the supposed moral necessity to wage warfare against special privilege and past injustice. The problem associated with this tactic, besides the fact that it assumes that past injustices and exploitations can be arbitrarily selected out of distant historical periods, and impose on the radically different, a radically different cultural current situation. Okay, they only apply it to whites. Blacks, who, who caught the slaves that, that were sold first to the Arabs? The Arabs were involved in slavery way before whites were. Uh, what about the blacks? Should they pay reparations to other blacks? What about the Arabs? Should they pay reparations? They only apply it to white people. They arbitrarily take stuff out of history that has nothing to do with us. I've never bought a slave. I've never sold a slave. I've never oppressed any black people. Uh, neither of you. I've never said anything bad to a black person and called him names for being black. <laughs> They're taking stuff that happened over 100 years ago, pulling it out of history arbitrarily, and applying it only to white people. Well, in fact, that movie that came out about the, the, the black uh, warriors, the black warriors... The, those black women warriors were in the business of conquering other blacks, getting slaves, and selling them to white people. <laughs> so, <clears throat> besides that, the biblical justice and morality applies to specific people, according to the Bible, 
specific people committing specific sins or crimes. Okay, we're not allowed to go, oh, well, all blacks are like this, or all these people are like that. We don't speak in broad classes or categories, or race, or talk about races. We talk about, the Bible talks about responsibility. You committed this crime, you're responsible to pay for that crime. We can't say, well, there was people in the South in the early, in the 1950s who oppressed blacks, therefore all white people are guilty. We can't do that. That's unjust. That's unlawful. We are not to accept general Marxist or racist categories because number one, as I've noted, they're not accurate or provable. And two, they replace personal responsibility and accountability with general categories, which is unlawful. They practice the very things that they are supposedly against that are clearly unjust and racist in their quest for justice and equality. So it's ironic. The people that are supposedly for blacks today, the Democrats, are, and blacks themselves, speaking generally, you know, of Democratic blacks, liberal blacks, which are almost 90%, 85%, are racist. They're racist. That's racism. In addition, the covetous attempt to form a social order of complete equality of outcomes, equality of outcomes, is not only impossible, but of necessity leads to inequality and special privilege, which is unjust. Now, our forefathers, the founders of our country, based on the influence of the biblical world and life, you sought equality under the law. Now, there were inconsistencies. Some had slaves. But they sought equality under the law. This means that there is one law or system of justice that is applied equally to all races, classes, and sexes. Okay, you don't treat poor people different than rich people. You don't treat black people different than white people. You don't treat females different than males. They're all treated the same under the law. There is equality in the application of justice. But the modern Marxist concept of equity ignores reality and is radically unjust. We must all accept the, tr accept the truth that although people are equal in the eyes of God, we could say they're ontologically equal, we're all human beings, we're all created in the image of God, we're all, we're all equal before God. People are not equal as far as their gifts, intelligence, beauty, motivation, and philosophy of life. Some women are very beautiful. Some are pretty ugly. Some men are very strong and tall. They can play basketball or football. Some are short and they're not very strong. Some people are much smarter than other people. Some people are kind of dumb. So you can't expect equality of outcome. Those who are smarter, work harder, are focused, educate themselves, and persevere will do better in life and will make more money generally. The modern covetous principle of the equity, I use the term equity, that's what the Democrats are using, not equality, not equality of opportunity, but equity, acts as though money falls from the sky and white males have extra money simply fall into their laps. <coughs> you just happen to be privilege simply because you're white. But such thinking is totally foolish. The modern Marxist principle of equity wants to take the wealth earned by the hard work and intelligence of the successful and give it to the unsuccessful. And that's not equity. That's inequality. People who are lazy, incompetent, who refuse to study, who refuse to apply themselves, who refuse to work hard and persevere, are given special privileges. You can be educated if you want to. You don't have to drop out of high school. You can go to college if you want. Especially if you're poor, you'll get free grants. You can go to college. You can apply yourself. You can become very successful if you work hard and you try. But we reward people who don't do that, who drop out of school, who get girls pregnant who take drugs. We reward the people that don't do the right thing. Those who work hard and are intelligent are penalized, even though they themselves have oppressed or exploited no one. 
the progressive statist has strong political incentive to stimulate covetousness and envy among the poor so they will vote for them to steal on their behalf. And that's why the moment you allow a party, a political party, to give money away, to steal from Paul to pay Peter, you basically enable them to buy votes. And that's how the Democrats get, they get, they've got a guaranteed 47, 48% of the people who are getting paid by the Democrats to, don't, to not do anything. The injustices of the distant past by people long dead and buried are used to justify economic and civil coercion, radical injustice, racial warfare, and theft by the state or special privileges. This radically unjust principle of equity is currently being applied to criminal law in some democratic-controlled cities, and the result, of course, is social disaster. The decriminalization of shoplifting in major democratic-controlled cities up to around $900 is based on the idea that the poor and minorities have been exploited so they should be able to come in and steal another man's goods. You're obviously a privilege. You own a store. These people are poor. They're black. They should be allowed to come in and steal up to $900. And what is the result? <laughs> the cities are falling apart and businesses are moving out of the cities right and left because you can't stay in business when people can come in and just steal stuff and the cops stand by and watch them. You can't stay in business that way. Downtown San Francisco, which used to be just totally crowded with people when I was young, I'd go there. Um, as far as back as two, 2014, it was pretty good when I was there. You go down there nowadays, it's, it's deserted and there's stores closed everywhere. Because people can't stay in business. You just can't stay in business. Rich people are often full of covetous, covetousness. Because without God and the Christian worldview, success and money are not simply another way to serve God, but rather become an end in themselves. They become greedy and obsessed with gaining more for the sake of having more and impressing others. If they possessed the whole world, they would not be satisfied. They'd want another world. And this is the tragedy of people who are rich for the sake of being rich, and these guys who completely neglect their families because they're at the office for 60, 70, 80 hours a week, and they completely neglect their families because they worship money. It is important, however, to keep in mind that the Bible does not condemn riches, and many great saints were wealthy. Job, Abraham, David, Solomon, the man who donated the burial plot to Jesus, I forgot his name. <coughs> Wealth and economic prosperity are presented in Scripture as covenantal blessings for a faithful habitual obedience to God's law. Deuteronomy 28, 3-5. Listen to what the scripture says. If the Jews were faithful, their storehouses, Deuteronomy 28.8, would be full. They would have plenty of goods, Deuteronomy 28.11. They would have so much money, they would be able to lend to many nations, Deuteronomy 28.12. After Job successfully went through the great trial of his faith, he had family members killed, he lost his house, his, all his flocks were destroyed, where his possessions were destroyed, God gave Job twice as much as he had before. Job 42.10. So he went from being rich to being super rich. Paul, Ephesians 4.28, instructs Christians to work very hard so they have extra money to provide for needy saints. Get a job, work hard, have enough money to help others. Scripture praises believing parents as godly if they are diligent enough to leave an inheritance behind for their faithful children and grandchildren. Proverbs 13.22. It's right in there. If you have faithful children that follow Christ, you want to be able to leave them money, and you want to leave them enough money where they can keep it and invest it and have money for their faithful children. God approves of that because that's part of dominion. Dominion is you build capital for the godly, and that capital continues after you're dead. 
economic growth, savings, and the development of capital passed on to obedient Christian children is biblical, wise, and a good means of extending godly behavior. See 2 Corinthians 12, 14, Proverbs 13, 22, and 19, 14. God repeatedly condemns people who are poor because of laziness and excess frivolity. See Proverbs 6, 6 to 11, and 28, 29. Now, when I went to Reformed Episcopal in the late 70s, the seminary was in its original place. The seminary was built in the 1800s when that area had cows and horses around it, West Philadelphia. And it was a beautiful area. Well, it became a ghetto. So I was around a ghetto and I had to walk through the ghetto to get to work, and I took the subway to get to work, and you see these guys, and what are they doing? They get their welfare check, they get their food stamps. When the state store opens, they're all in line to buy liquor, and then how do they pass their time? They're playing cards. They're gambling. They're drinking booze. They're smoking weed. They're being irresponsible. They do not deserve our money. The Bible condemns that as wickedness. Those who spend money foolishly and squander it are presented in the Bible as fools, Proverbs 21.20. While those who save up for a secure economic future are called wise, Proverbs 21.5. And I should have looked it up, but there's one where God talks about the ants and how wise they are because they provide extra food for themselves, so when times are hard, they have some extra food. <clears throat> Economic blessings are promised to the diligent, Proverbs 13.4, but the lazy will go hungry, Proverbs 19.15. So the Bible's not teaching asceticism. The Bible's not teaching that it's wrong to have wealth. The Bible's not teaching uh, Buddhism or Stoicism or that we should take a vow of poverty, and that's wonderful. But the Bible is teaching that we shouldn't be greedy and we shouldn't covet. Wisdom builds a house and fills it with riches and luxurious things. Proverbs 24, 3 to 4. Wisdom does that. You got to live somewhere. Why would you rent when you can buy a house, pay for it, put some nice things in it, have a nice garden? That's wise, the Bible says. There's nothing wrong with that. I say that, you know, uh, it was uh, Charles, uh, not Charles Finley, uh, Wesley. It was Wesley who said, uh, when I, I'm going to make sure that when I die, I don't have a penny left of my name. Because that shows how, you know, basically that shows how godly I am. That when I die, I don't have a penny left of my name. Shows that I didn't care about money. Well, that's not a biblical view. The biblical view is is when you, you don't want to covet, obviously, but you want to die and you want to leave capital and equity and money and things out for your faithful children so it'll help them have godly dominion. Those who refuse correction will receive poverty and shame. Proverbs 13, 18. Christians are to stay out of debt to the best of their ability. Romans 13, 8. For the rich rolls over the poor, and the borrower is a slave to the lender. Proverbs 22, 7. Those who refuse to work are lazy, wicked, and useless. Proverbs 21, 25 to 26. And Paul tells us, don't give them any food. If you don't work, you shouldn't eat. 2 Thessalonians 3, 10. So welfare, where you just write people a check so they can sit home and smoke pot. I know I worked in a welfare office in the 70s go over to people's houses. They got Heineken beer in the fridge. They got really good weed. Uh, this is when I wasn't a Christian. <laughs> and uh, they're getting welfare checks. They could easily get a job tomorrow. But why should they when they get paid to stay at home and watch soap operas and smoke pot? Our Lord had rich disciples such as Zacchaeus, who when converted made a full restitution to those he had defrauded, and he gave liberally to the poor. Luke 19, 8 and following. And Nicodemus, who used some of his riches to anoint our Lord's body for burial. John 19, 39. 
So, I bring all this up as a counter, really, to Roman Catholicism, where taking a vow of poverty is wonderful. A study of Scripture reveals that having riches and even luxurious items in and of itself is not intrinsically sinful. One of the benefits of having a society that follows biblical law, where most people are Christians, is covenant blessings and material prosperity. And of course, it'll be a great blessing because you don't have to worry about getting robbed. Like San Francisco. I wouldn't even, whenever I used to visit relatives, I'd always go to San Francisco and spend a day walking around Chinatown and checking out the bridge and... I won't do that anymore. It's just, it's just not safe. Your car's going to get broken into. It's dangerous. We want to make sure that we are not influenced by Neoplatonic, Romanists, monastic or ascetic, as well as Marxist concepts of wealth. There is nothing <coughs> intrinsically virtuous about being poor or living in poverty. The proof texts that so-called Christian Marxists used in order to praise the poor or poverty as something virtuous, as something either to be to, uh, to the righteous, uh, refers either to the righteous who are poor due to persecution and ungodly oppression, Exodus 22, 27, Psalm 9, 9 to 10, or those who understand their spiritual poverty and sinfulness and thus look to Jesus Christ. Matthew 5, 3, Luke 6, 20, C 18, 14, and Philippians 3, 8 to 9. So on the one hand, we want to steer clear of asceticism, Roman Catholicism, Marxism, asceticism. We also want to steer clear of your prosperity gospel preachers who basically teach that the whole point of being a Christian is so we can all get rich and drive Bentleys and live in mansions. Just absolute nonsense. The Bible teaches contentment. Scripture condemns wealth received or gained by unlawful means and wealth when it becomes an idol and men serve riches instead of God. Jesus said, Matthew 6, 24, No man can serve two masters, for he either will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. You can't serve God and money. One's got to take the first place, of the other, or it becomes a mammon becomes an idol. The covetous, selfish, self-centered accumulation of goods is unscriptural. Placing material possessions and even lawful entertainments above our Lord's kingdom is sinful. When people accumulate goods to glorify self and not God, then they are not treasuring up riches in heaven. And, it, you know, it's interesting. If you study scripture, prosperity is generally a result of living according to biblical principles. It's not something people are set out, you know, oh, my goal in life is to be rich. No, my goal in life is to be a good Christian. And prosperity happens to follow that. Because you're following biblical principles of economics. You're following biblical principles of saving and preparing for the future and so on. It's not that you set out to get rich and that's your goal in life. It just happens that people who are godly, who work hard, get ahead in life. That's why Northern Europe, where the Puritans and the Protestants were, is the richest area in the whole world. In America, which is the, the stepchildren of the Protestants in Europe. The Roman Catholic areas, which were more ascetic, of course, are worse. And then, of course, the third world countries and countries controlled by Islam, which is satanic to the core, are, are generally in poverty. Prosperity must be the fruit of living for Christ, not the sole focus of life. Believers are to live with a focus on God's kingdom, for our earthly existence is but a brief time compared to eternity. So our priorities reveal the state of our hearts. <clears throat> are we placing the Savior's kingdom first or receiving the world? Here's what Paul says in 1 Timothy 6, 6-9. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain that we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, with these we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. You can't take it with you. 
And Solomon tells us the proper Christian attitude toward wealth, honor the Lord with your possessions and with the first fruits of all your increase so your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will overflow with new wine. Proverbs 3, 9 to 10. And I think I'm going to stop there because I have to save enough for next week. I have to deal with uh, contentment and I have to deal more on covetousness. So we're going to stop there. Um, <clears throat> Christian economics, hard work, diligent labor, building capital. Yeah, it's important for godly dominion into the future. But we can't covet. We can't live to get rich. That's not our goal. Our goal is to serve God, and if God blesses us and we prosper because we're following biblical principles, that's great. But we'll, we'll stop there and we'll continue next week. Lord, we thank you so much for your word, your law. It is amazing. Help us, Lord, not to covet. Help us to be content with what we have and to use it for your kingdom and learn to serve you with our minds, with our hearts, our money, and everything. In Jesus' name.